Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. We're all food lovers, aren't we? I haven't met anyone who doesn't like food. And if you're a food lover, at least if you like quantity, not these little kind of artistic tiny plates you pay a lot of money for at restaurants, but if you like quantity, buffets are fantastic things. I don't know if you're a buffet fan. And uh, in Manchester, I've realized there are a lot of really well-priced buffets. I don't know what the noun of assemblage is for buffets. Maybe it's a paradise of buffets. There's lots of great buffets. Now, there's something really exciting about a buffet, and there's something a little dangerous too, isn't there? The idea that you can sort of come in and have as much as you like of whatever you like is kind of a dangerous thing for a human heart, but they're exciting things, aren't they? And, but they're often disappointing things. Often uh, they promise much, and they don't yield what they promise. They look awesome, but then the food could be a little average. I remember one time, Cherie and I were given an anniversary gift a number of years ago, in Brisbane, we went to a buffet, and uh, it was a very expensive buffet, but the, buffet, the food was good, but compared to what it cost, it wasn't worth it at all. And so we felt compelled to just keep eating to get our money's worth. <laughs> and I think um, that's forever damaged Cherie's view of buffets, which is a sad thing. It didn't damage mine. I'm still keen for buffets. Another great thing about buffets is that you don't have to wait. You kind of come in, you get your table, and in you go straight away, and you dive in. I don't know if you've had this experience, but for me, sometimes I'll uh, eat myself full, I'll get excited, and I won't do a proper reconnaissance. And so you sort of fill up, and then you realize that the person next to you has all this wonderful food that you wish you'd filled up on yourself. Now, life, many have said that life is a lot like a buffet, in lots of different ways. There's a whole array of choices in front of us, of what we can fill up on. An endless array, it seems, a whole smorgasbord of things that we can fill our lives with, we can be satisfied in, offering satisfaction to us. Some of them, some of them we dive into without really thinking about whether they're gonna truly satisfy us or not. And the question is, for you and me, is what are we going to pursue? What is it that you are looking for to fill you up in life? What is it that you are seeking or have sought for satisfaction. Even today, if you were to pause and think, what is it? If I could get this, I'll be satisfied. This is what I want right now. What is that thing? Today we're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about what Jesus says is the real food, the thing that satisfies us fully. In this passage in John 6, Jesus is imploring us to think carefully about what we fill up on. And he's encouraging us to ask What is it that will satisfy me, not just today, but for eternity? What is the eternal satisfaction? Last week we saw the signs that Jesus performed, the feeding of the crowds, and we looked together at the walking on the water and the feeding of the crowds. And today we're going to just unpack this idea that Jesus is the bread of life. And a great summary statement is found in verse 27. If you want a big idea for this message, it would be verse 27, I think. Jesus says this, this is a great command instruction for us. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Don't live for things that fade away. Don't live for things that don't satisfy. Don't live for things that in the end are worthless and and are empty or just the physical, but 
pursue that which lasts forever. So Christ is telling us that we need to look to him. Notice those words, the son of man will give you that food. So we need to look to him. He's alone, he alone can satisfy us in this life and eternity. That's the point of our message today. The first uh, section we'll talk about is that Jesus is the true manna. Now, you know, in 2007 in Washington, D.C., there was an experiment, a little social experiment performed where a man walked into a busy Washington, D.C. train station, subway station, uh, in peak hour in the morning. He was a violinist, and he set up his, um, you know, like a busker, and he started playing some of the most difficult and complex pieces of violin and beautiful pieces that can be played. Thousands of people streamed past this man without stopping. Only seven people stopped for more than a minute, not realizing that this man was one of the most celebrated solo violinists in the world, a man named Joshua Bell. And two days previously, he'd sold out a theater in Boston for $100 a ticket, um, and here he was, and people were completely missing the significance of uh, this event that was happening in front of them. Now, the same thing is happening today. We see these crowds seeing this amazing thing and really not getting the significance of the signs that they saw. And so we come into a conversation between Jesus and the, the crowds and his followers about what happened the previous day and the sign Jesus performed. He's done an amazing sign. He's fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. But the f- crowds fail to see the significance, the significance of the sign. Now we see that they're initially impressed. Have a look at verse 14. We see that the crowds initially are wowed by this sign. After they saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And they intended to come and make him king by force. So they are impressed that Jesus has fed these crowds. But the very next day, it seems, amazingly, that they completely forget. Have a look at verse 30 and 31. What do they do? They ask for a sign. Jesus is teaching about himself, saying, you need to look to me. And they're saying, well, what's your sign? They say, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And here's the amazing thing. They ask him to replicate a sign like Moses did in the desert, feeding the crowds. And they say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Isn't this astonishing that they would actually say, we want you to do a sign to prove what you've done. And here's an example, the one Moses did by feeding the crowds in the desert. What's Jesus done the previous day? He's done exactly that. Now, the crowds miss it, but John wants us to understand. Have a look at the last verse of John chapter 5. What does John say? Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So John's actually making that point and then going straight on to show what Jesus does about the feeding of the crowds, paralleling this miracle of the manna in the wilderness. John's actually reminding us that the whole point of all of those Old Testament pictures is Jesus himself. That's what they're about. There's lots of pictures in the Old Testament that point to Christ. Can you think of any? Especially around the Exodus, and we learned about the Exodus earlier uh, a few months ago. Can you think of some pictures of Christ? One might be the Passover lamb. One might be the snake 
raised up on a pole that people could look to and believe in. Maybe the curtain in the tabernacle that was torn when, when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple. Here we have one of the most significant of all, and that is Jesus being the true manna. He explains this in verses 32 and 33. Have a look. He actually says, well, that's the whole point of what I've just done. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what is this bread? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the manna. I'm the manna that came down from heaven. What happened to the Israelites, that was pointing to me. I'm, I'm the whole point of that picture. I'm the true manna. The problem is that the crowds can't see it. They're impressed by, by displays of power. They love the fact that he can fill their stomachs with bread, but they can't see what they most need. What do they most need? What, what, sorry, why can't they see it? The answer is they're consumed by the physical. Now that's what spiritual blindness is. Spiritual blindness is being consumed by the physical. So all that we see and all that matters to us is the physical. What we can see, what we can touch, things that we can appropriate with our physical senses. That's, that's what spiritual blindness is, is only valuing those things and not what we can't see, spiritual realities. And you know, in this way, the crowds in front of Jesus are just like the unbelieving Israelites at the time of the manna in the wilderness. We, the parallels are so strong, we just pause to take, make some connections here. Do you remember the story? So God leads the Israelites across the Red Sea, and what happens? They're in the desert, and they're crying out for food, and God sends this manna every night. This, uh, this sort of um, substance just settles on the ground uh, every day, and they have to go out and collect it. They collect a daily portion of this, and they can sort of push it together and knead it into loaves and they bake it like bread. And so for 40 years, the Israelites lived on this manna. Manna simply meant, what is it? They didn't know what it was, they just ate it. Now think about the similarities here between the crowds in front of Jesus and the Israelites. We have a situation where they're both in a barren, desolate place. We see that they're both in need of food. We see that God miraculously provides food both times. We see in both cases, look at verse 11 in, of John 6, that they, both, they ate as much as they wanted, which says the same in uh, Numbers. It says that in both cases, the crowds, the people miss the significance. They're, they're not looking to the Lord and the significance of what he's done. But in both cases, they grumble and complain. Did you notice that as we read our reading three times? Look at verse 41, for example. They grumble. They grumble and complain. Now, what's the lesson here for us? There was a spiritual blindness back then in, in the Exodus times. There's a spiritual blindness uh, in Jesus' times, and there's a danger for us right now, today, of the same kind of problem of spiritual blindness. We need to be careful that our minds are not so caught up in the physical things that we just totally miss the spiritual realities. And this is why in this passage, and in all the book of John, Jesus is constantly pushing towards spiritual realities. Look, see beyond the physical things I'm saying to the spiritual realities. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter three. And uh, Jesus said, you must be born again. And what did Nicodemus say? He didn't get it, did he? He says, surely I can't crawl into my mother's womb and be born again. He's thinking physically. What about the woman at the well? 
Jesus says, look, I can give you living water. What does Jesus say? Look, I'd love, sorry, what does the woman say? I'd love that living water. Then I don't have to come to the well and refill up every day from this water. She doesn't get it. And it's just, the same is true of the crowds here. Have a look at verses 33 and 34. Jesus is pushing towards spiritual realities, but they can't see it. The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They want this physical bread. They don't see that Jesus is talking about something spiritual. They're not valuing the spiritual realities. What about you? Do spiritual realities mean significant things to you? Are they important? The physical has its place, of course. Physical is a means, isn't it? But we're not made for it. All these things like food and clothes and appearance and houses and all these things, we're not made for these things. The danger is that we actually live for them. Have a look at verses 63 and 64. And Jesus illustrates this kind of distinction between the physical and the spiritual. He says, the spirit gives life. The flesh or the physical counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. See, he's saying, I'm talking about spiritual realities. Stop thinking about and valuing the physical things more. Jesus is calling us to pursue greater realities than these. All right, so we're going to talk here about two things that Jesus provides for us in the next two main points. So second major point here, if you're taking notes, pursuing Jesus as our eternal bread. Uh, every week, I try to have a daddy time with one of my children. Uh, I'll take one of them out for an hour and we'll just, just some one-on-one time. And the kids look forward to it, but I've realized that actually uh, they're starting to make the means the end and the end the means. What I mean is, well, often, often these times involve food. So I'll take them out to uh, maybe to get a burger at McDonald's or an ice cream or something. And we'll just hang out for an hour. But I've realized more and more that their comments are like this. I can't wait for daddy time. I'm going to have a Big Mac. I can't wait for daddy time. I'm going to have cheesecake. All of a sudden, the means has become the end. The end, good time with dad, has become the means to food, which is supposed to be the means. You understand? The means and the end are reversed. Now, we often make this mistake, confusing the end and the means. I've got a question for you. Is Jesus our means or our end? What would you say? Is Jesus our means or our end? Answer is... He's both our means and our end. He is both the giver of eternal life and he's the end of eternal life. And actually, I encourage you to think about this, we can't have him as only one of those. If he's just your means, then you're not pursuing him for, what he, for himself, but for what he can give you. If he's just your end, then you see him and see his desirable, but you're not coming through the cross. You need him to be both your means and your end. And Jesus is our means. We'll look at that first, and then we'll look at Jesus being our end. Verse 27, have a look at it again. Do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So Jesus gives us this bread. And we see he's also our end. Verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. So he gives the bread, and he is the bread. We're going to talk about both of these. So... How is Jesus our means? Going to unpack four important spiritual realities that Jesus emphasizes repeatedly in this passage. 
There's a lot of verses here, so we're just going to sort of bring these together under four ideas. The first one is atonement. Jesus brings us atonement. This is one of the spiritual realities. He is our substitute on the cross. He died to be our redeemer. Have a look at verses 51 to 54. Now, there's really no chance of them understanding this properly at the time. But what a blessing for us that we have the full revelation of Scripture. We can understand what these things mean through the cross. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can they, this man give us his flesh to eat? See, they're thinking physically again. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, if you're thinking physically, this sounds really macabre, doesn't it? Sounds uh, really offensive. It sounds like Jesus is telling us, to, how can we eat his flesh? He's not talking about physical things. He's saying that we need, he's talking about a spiritual reality of his giving up his life, his body being laid down on a cross and his blood being shed so that through his atonement on the cross we could be forgiven. That's what he did on the cross. So he's saying, you need to come to me as a saviour. You need to come to me as an atoning sacrifice for your sin. This is the only means for us to get to God is by trusting in what he did on the cross. If you haven't trusted in Jesus on the cross, He's telling you that you need to trust him. The only way to come to God is by faith in what he did on the cross. Second reality is resurrection. Have a look at verse 39. And you see actually that this, this uh, phrase Jesus repeats four times. Verse 39, 40, 44 and 54. He says, I will raise him up at the last day. So he says this four times. Obviously, this is an important point. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not talking about bread that just endures for a day. I'm talking about something that endures forever. Jesus is actually predicting his resurrection. If on the last day he's going to die and rise again, and he has the power to raise us into new life, into eternal life. So Jesus will die, but he's going to rise again and have authority to raise us from the dead. So resurrection. Third one is saving faith. Jesus is our means because we must look to him to trust him alone, not ourselves. Have a look at verse 29. He says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, four times Jesus says that as well, this idea of believe in me. How do we access this bread? How is it that we receive this bread that Jesus offers? We don't earn it. We just look to him. And this is so important for us. I'll just read all these verses, 27 to 29. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus mentions the word work and the crowds think they must earn it. They must work for their place with God or their place in the kingdom of heaven what does Jesus say here he gives it the work is to believe in him now another picture of this is it came up before this idea of feeding on Jesus what does it mean to feed on Jesus it means to trust him have a look at verse 58 the one who feeds on me will live 
because of me. Now they're really important words, because of me. Why will we live if we put our faith in Jesus? Because of the work he has done. It's not by earning your own way. It's not by earning your own merit before God. It's because of his work. So when you put your trust in Jesus, you actually are united in his perfect standing. You get everything that he is. And that's how we come into the kingdom. Now, this is the most freeing thing in the world, isn't it? To trust in Christ and to know that you don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to earn it yourself. You can cease striving. We don't have to be religious. We don't have to be legalists. We don't have to try and keep a law. We can trust him entirely. He does all the work. You only need to come. Now, one amazing thing it strikes me about babies, they can't do much, but they can eat, can't they? They know how to eat. And it's similar for us. All we're asked to do really is come and eat. To anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's all we need to do is come. That's all he requires of us is to come. So have you come? Are you trusting in Christ's work alone, not your own? All you need to do is come and receive him by faith. Fourth one is this idea of election. Now, this is a struggle for lots of people, but you just can't miss it in what Jesus says. He says it again and again. In fact, he mentions four times ideas of all that the Father uh, gives to me will come to me. And verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. He says this twice. Saving faith isn't something we do. Even the faith that we have is a gift from him. We don't, you, if you've come to Christ, you haven't come to Christ because you've made a better decision than the person who hasn't. You've come to Christ because God has drawn you to him. And this is something Jesus emphasizes in this passage. Last week I mentioned silver chair. We were listening to the car recently, in the car. And uh, one picture in that is, uh, Asla, uh, sorry, uh, Eustace and Jill are wanting to get into Narnia. Eustace has just told us some adventures he had. Uh, in Narnia and Jill wants to go there they're in school and they're running away from some bullies and so it's an appealing idea to go to this place and so they call out to Aslan to come into Narnia and when they arrive Aslan says to Jill you wouldn't have called unless I'd called you first and so when you call on Christ it's because he has drawn you first he's drawn you first so what's the summary of all of those spiritual realities the summary is this Jesus has done it all He's the one who's our substitute. He pays the price on the cross. He'll raise us up on the last day. He's our object of faith. He does all the work. And the Father draws us. So he does it all. Now, it's, it's as if he's laid out this beautiful feast. And he's paid it all. He's paid the price for all this feast. And he's invited all of us to come. And the issue is, are we going to come and to be satisfied? Are you going to come and be satisfied? The feast is laid out. You don't have to do anything. Just come. Are you going to come? Have you come? Jesus is the means. He's also the end. So this is our final point here. Jesus is not just our eternal bread. He's our daily bread. Uh, Fifteen years ago, Shereen and I were in Thailand for a two-month trip with some students on a a sort of cross-cultural mission trip. And Thai food is amazing. I can't speak much Thai, but I actually can speak lots of foods in Thai because I wanted to study them so I could order them. And so I can order Thai food. One of the problems is when you're sitting down in a Thai restaurant and you try and say it, they're waiting for you just to tell them in English and they don't really listen, so you end up just having to say number 44, please. (laughs) Can't really use 
it. But I learnt them there. Now, we had been there for about a month, and Sheree and I eating rice every day. And we got a craving for potato. We both wanted some mashed potato. And so we looked around and we found a German brew house that sold mashed potato and sausage. And so we went to this restaurant and filled ourselves on mashed potato and sausage. To this day, I don't know why the potato was colored green, but it still tasted good. Just about something about staple diets. So rice is the staple diet in Thailand. What would you say is the world's biggest staple diet? Here you go, the answer's on the screen in front of you. This is interesting. There are staple diets in the world, and obviously on the screen, corn is the one that's the most common, the most grown, at least it was in 2012. Now, I would have thought it was rice, but there it is. Now, Jesus declared, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me We'll never be thirsty. Now, if we're going to understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm the bread of life, we need to understand something about staple diets because we don't really get this concept in our culture of staple diets anymore. What is a staple diet? It's something that a people depends on every meal. It's the basis of every meal. Without this, they starve. If there's a drought of this uh, substance, wheat or whatever it is, then they starve. Now, we don't get this because if, potato, if there's a, a shortage of potatoes, it just means that they import them from somewhere else and the prices go up. Or we just fill up on um, naan bread or we fill up on something else like rice. But this is important. For us, bread is just one of many carbohydrate options, isn't it? Now, if we load that idea into this idea of Jesus being the bread of life, we're going to completely miss what Jesus is saying. He is absolutely not saying, I am just one of many options for you. I am just one of many ways you can be filled up. He's not saying that at all. In fact, he's saying precisely the opposite. He's saying that without me, you have no life. Without me, there's only death. Without me, you're lost. Now, a better way to think about this is to load this idea of the manna in the wilderness into what Jesus is saying. When he says, I'm the bread of life, think of the manna. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness. They lived on this stuff alone, just about entirely, apart from a bit of quail as well, for 40 years. They lived on it. We need to understand that this was their staple diet. Jesus is saying, I'm your staple. I'm exactly what you need all the time. Now, something about manna is that it had to be gathered daily. It couldn't be hoarded up. It had to be gathered daily. Now Jesus, like manna, is not just our eternal bread, he's our daily bread. He offers us satisfaction, not just in eternity so that we trust in him and our eternity is secure, he offers us satisfaction today. So my question to you is, are you seeking Christ for satisfaction today? Are you satisfied in him today? Is he your end as well as your means? Are you satisfied in him? What are you seeking to be satisfied in? Now, A great example of this idea of being satisfied in the Lord himself is in the Psalms. And uh, we're going to look at Psalm 63 just briefly, verses 1 to 5 here. And life group leaders, you might we've talked about this verse, you might be familiar with this verse. Think about David, he's in the desert and he's thirsty. What is it he's longing for in the desert? He says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you, O Lord, as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Now, whatever our physical situation is, Jesus' love is better than life, and we can be satisfied in him. That's what Christ is offering us today. That's what we mean by daily bread. Not just eternal bread, but daily bread. He wants us to seek his face and be satisfied in him. And a danger for us, a danger for us is that we actually fill up on everything else in the world, and so there's no room left for him. This is a real danger for us in our culture. I was, years ago, I was at the wedding of a good friend and I've kind of explained to you how much I enjoy food and I like to dive in. And here we were waiting to go into the main meal of the wedding reception and uh, they were serving hors d'oeuvres, you know, appetizers. Don't know what you call them here. Um, appetizers? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And so they were great, you know, they're constantly bringing around these trays of food, you know, seafood on sticks and lamb and all this kind of delicious stuff. And it was taking a while for us to get in and I actually filled myself up on all the appetizers. So when we actually got in and sat down to the main meal, to my shame, I couldn't really eat it. I was already full. And you know, this is a real danger for us today. Perhaps the greatest danger for us in our culture, the value and the priority for us is the physical and so much is pushed toward us saying, get this, grab this, take this, fill up on it. And in fact, we can fill up on any number of things. As I look back on my life, I can see how it's just been a constant trail of me trying to look for something to fill up on. Different things at different times. What about you? What are the appetizers that you're tempted to fill up on and leave no room instead for Christ. It's so easy for us to be consumed by physical things. We know the saying, we don't live to eat, we eat to live. The physical is only a means. So all these things, let's think about them. What are you tempted to be consumed by? Maybe your work. Advancing in your work or doing a good job in your work. Getting through that challenging stuff that is on your plate at work. Maybe it's your house. Uh, maybe buying a house or renovating your house or improving your house. Maybe it's food itself, the next meal you can enjoy. Maybe it's homely comforts of some kind. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's rest. Maybe it's sexual desire. Maybe it's physical fitness, your appearance, clothes, sport, leisure or entertainment. Now, at all points of life, I can see how I've pursued different ones of these. Now, there's a place for all these things, but these are not what we live for. All of this is food that spoils. The danger is that when we seek these things for satisfaction today, we drive out our appetite for Christ. It says in 1 John chapter 2, it says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you see how one drives out the other. We can't have both. Are you struggling to find joy in Christ? When I say he's our daily satisfaction, 
Are you struggling to, to, to see the reality of that? Are you finding it hard to see how you could be satisfied in him? If so, I would suggest that perhaps there's some things in your life, some physical things that you're pursuing instead, that you're, you're absorbed in instead. You know, one thing that Tim Keller points out about manna is that when people hoarded it overnight, it began to fester and stink and rot. And you know, the things in the world are like that. If we take them beyond what they were given to us for, if we hoard them, if we hold on to these physical things and live for them, they actually rot. They fester and stink and become dissatisfying, loathsome things, actually bring misery and self-destruction. It's only one thing that's going to meet our eternal need and our daily need for satisfaction, and that's Christ himself. He offers us himself. So just close with verse 27 again in Jesus' words. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, these words really are simple words that you are the one who satisfies us. We're to come to you. Lord, uh, forgive us for being uh, seeking to be satisfied in the things of this world. Lord, think about those words in Jeremiah that your people had committed two great evils, forsaking you, the spring of living water, and digging their own cisterns, broken cisterns that could not hold water. Lord, our sin really in summary has been that we have forgotten you, turned from you, and sought our satisfaction, our, our water in by digging it out of the earth, by seeking it in the earth and finding nothing uh, that would satisfy us there. What a great evil, what a great folly. Lord, forgive us. Only you offer satisfaction now and in eternity. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not put his or her faith in you, your death on the cross, your resurrection, that they might do that and find you as the means of eternal life. And Lord, I pray for all of us who, who are walking with you, and know, who know you, that we would not be satisfied with things that last for a, t- for a day, things that fade away, but we'd be satisfied only in you. Lord, that we'd pursue you, we'd seek your face, that we'd be able to say what David can say in any situation, that we'd thirst for you, that we'd hunger for you, that our soul would be satisfied in you as with the richest of foods. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.